Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we dig in tonight, I've got a delicious morsel to tell you about that I think your taste buds are bound to adore. The latest narration project from our own Andrew Gibson. Here's a little amuse-bouche to whet your appetite. At Broth House, our soups are made from only the finest fresh ingredients, sourced locally through donations. Our charitable restaurant believes that even the homeless and downtrodden deserve a good meal, a gourmet meal. The meats are sourced locally, too, made from only the best stock. Everyone deserves a warm meal in their belly. Here at Brothhouse, we thank you for your contribution. Everything you give helps feed the needy and the underprivileged. We cannot express how much we appreciate your generous donation. A savory cannibal thriller, read by Andrew Gibson, Broth House by Robert Essig, is now available on Audible. If you enjoy Andrew's narrations on the show as much as I do, make sure to check this one out. Link is in the show notes. Speaking of tasty, terrifying morsels, we're a full week into our latest flash fiction contest. The entries have begun to trickle in, but, as usual... The appetites of our readers are voracious, and so far they've only been whetted. 
So I'm relying on you to get your secret society-inspired dish cooked up and delivered to our table. Hopefully before they get too hungry to help themselves and do something they, and I, will regret. Head to TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest for all of the details and links to our submissions platform. You have until March 1st. Now, how about something to whet your dark appetite? We have one story for you this evening, which comes from A.D. Ross. A.D. Ross started out writing as a student filmmaker and transitioned to writing prose when he finally ceased being a student. His first published story, Demon, appeared in the 2017 anthology Realities Perceived. He lives in the north of England and mostly frets about not doing enough writing. He also has a PhD in modern British history, and he isn't sure why. Children of the Night, join me for A.D. Ross's Grandfather Rot, a Tales to Terrify original. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Abigail did not breathe. Her quarry would feel her breath on his exposed skin. She did not look directly at him. He would sense her gaze. She did not allow a sound to escape her person as she stalked toward him. He would detect even the slightest noise that emanated from something not animal, bird, or wind. She absorbed the crackling of the dried leaves beneath her boots, the rustling of the undergrowth that parted for her to progress and the creaking of her weathered leather coat. Slowly, deliberately, she advanced upon the fay undetected. He was perched atop a knoll, 
looking down upon the thick Mississippi woodland through soft green eyes, lost in thought. Unaware of her presence, he murmured a sad song, a requiem for a forest not unlike this one, but so very far away. She stood at his shoulder for a moment, seeing him, though not quite looking at him, holding a swirling cacophony within her slight frame. She unleashed the stored sounds. The mid-afternoon serenity broke with a thunderclap of overlaid cracks, snaps, rustles, groans, and squeaks. The fay reacted like a fish landed by dynamite, convulsing, then dropping limply before the muddied toes of her riding boots. His otherworldly eyes stared up at her, wreathed in uncomprehending fear, the unspoken question evident upon his thin face. How? She did not speak as she bound his wrists and ankles with hexed rope. She lifted him easily onto her shoulder, troubled more by keeping him balanced atop her narrow figure than his weight. He weighed far less than would a mortal man of equal stature. The trudge back to her house was loud. She did not expend the energy to deaden the forest sounds. After some thirty or forty yards, her captive began to wail inconsolably. I'm a poor slave, he protested. She deposited him across the back of Arthur's saddle. Arthur whinnied unhappily, unsettled by his otherworldly burden. Abigail mused at the horse's reaction for a moment. Arthur had never shied from her. Perhaps more of the mortal realm remained in her than she believed. Stowing the existential question for later, she turned her attention to the bound Fay. Would you like me to cut out your tongue? She asked finally, very politely. It's truth I speak, the Fay insisted, cowering before her. After what you have done, you have the gall to say such a thing? Did you say the same to the children you stole? As it happens, yes, yes, I did tell them such, with many sincere apologies. Her face darkened. Please, it is truth. The master stole me from the old world. You have seen it, haven't you? I can see it in your soul. You were stolen from the old world, too. Not stolen, she objected. You were a child, I think, the fae went on, nodding vigorously. You, you walked with my people, didn't you, when you were small? That was a very long time ago. An immortal blink, he teased. You are not as old as you think, sister witch. Do not test me. I'm to deliver you to justice in the free state. They did not specify that I need to deliver you intact. With that, she swung up onto Arthur's back and spurred him on. You are powerful, the fae observed after they had ridden for a couple of miles. Yes, she agreed. You could break the master's curse and give me my freedom. If such a curse were upon you, yes, I could undoubtedly break it, though I've sensed no such hex. Hidden. The masters are skilled, the slave makers. <laughs> you share their blood, white devil, he chuckled knowingly. You try my patience. With truth, he shot back. But you stand for freedom, don't you? I do. Then grant mine. I've entered into a contract with the free state. I can't just turn you loose because the mood takes me. Ah, because you're a white devil, they do not trust you. Stop calling me that. Be silent, she snapped. The fay was gleaning too much, fathoming her motives. If he probed much farther, he would unearth her guilt and her irrational yearning for the approval of the freed peoples. And then he would seek to wield them against her. I can direct you to a wicked man. 
He lives very near to here. You could bring him to justice, the Fae offered, mercifully changing tact. None of the estates this close to the border keep slaves. They have too much sense, she retorted. So near the banks of the Mississippi, any slaveholder would soon face a visit from the Free State's militia. The Confederate Congress might raise an occasional ruckus should her master be harassed on this side of the boundary. Yet still, the promised divisions from Atlanta had not arrived. It was apparent to all that the Confederacy's appetite for war was long sated. This wicked man does, I swear, the Fay maintained. Many slaves, all die. You could stop it. Abigail pulled up Arthur's reins and he came to an obedient halt. She scratched affectionately at his mane before swinging down from the saddle. The Fay looked at her expectantly and his eyes widened in surprise as she clamped her hand over his mouth. He struggled and moaned as she worked her hex, but bound, he could not resist her. They rode in on a quiet that Abigail found almost blissful, the Fay unable to speak without a mouth to open. Such a hex would not have worked upon a mortal, but magical beings were more malleable when subjected to transfigurative curses. The Fay tried to protest, but the clatter of hooves drowned out the sounds he made behind the smooth skin where his lips had been. She returned his mouth only after she had supped, though the plaintive looks he gave her were almost as off-putting as his prattling. I'll never be welcome in the free state again if I break my contract, she told him when he recommended his extortions for freedom. She had examined his aura shortly after making camp and confirmed that he was speaking the truth. There was a binding enchantment laced through his soul. It was an intricate curse which would require considerable skill to unravel, though Abigail was more than equal to the task. The discovery troubled her. She had assumed the Fae who crept behind the free state's borders to steal children away into bondage did so of their own free will. How did the slave makers entrap you? She asked eventually. The Vodum priests and those freed folks with training in European witchery had scoured the Mississippi wilds and caught only a handful of Fay. They had not been eager to ask for help from outsiders. Abigail doubted she would ever get a better opportunity to win the freed people's respect. A cursed child in the old world, the Fay explained. A child with such shining fancies who talked to the trees and danced with beings of pure imagination. We could not resist. We brought her to revel with the fair folk, but alas, we grew sick and weak. We did not sense the poison that the slave makers had secreted within her psyche. They exposed her and then suppressed her recollection so we would not see it in her thoughts. He sighed sadly. Oh, the slave makers subjugate all the world. Not me, she said quietly. They did, though, once, I think. Once and only once. She did not like to recall the memories of powerlessness, of the years before her awakening, when she had been a mortal girl in a hostile world, living at the mercy of men's whims. Her father had dragged her from an enchanted childhood in the old world to the grim, precarious pilgrim colonies, had married her off to a stranger, heedless of her opinion on the matter. She had grown to love that kind stranger, true, but the psychic wound had never fully healed regardless. She could never forget that her Thomas could easily have been a different man. Wicked man, he hooted suddenly. You can make him pay. That will cause you pleasure, yes? His thin gray-hued lips peeled back over his needle teeth in a knowing grin. She returned the grin scandalously. Nice try, 
I have taken my pleasures from such things and will again, but I have a contract to fulfill. I'm sorry for what the slave makers did to you, and I will inform the authorities in Langston. They may be merciful. May, the Fay observed with a solemn nod. I can say no more now. Let me sleep or I'll remove your mouth again. Must free the fairy. I must what? Still half in sleep, Abigail sat up blinkingly. Oh, you look well, my love. Thomas? How are you there? Abigail let her pupils roll up beneath her fluttering eyelids so that her third eye might open. Her second sight confirmed what her mortal eyes had reported. The shade before her, standing illuminated in the moonlit glade, was indeed that of her dear, late husband. Her mortal eyes filled with tears. It had been centuries. Need brought me across the divide. His voice was distant and faint, even for a shade. Age has been very kind to you, Abby. I thought you might be an old hag by now, but you look more handsome than the day I left you. Thomas. In spite of herself, she smiled bashfully. She had grown tired of youth. For a century or so, it proved enjoyable to retain the appearance of a girl with just 25 years in the world. But in time, the condensation of people's decades, her junior, had worn upon her nerves. She could have maintained her youthful appearance indefinitely, and she could return, too, if the fancy ever took her. Such was the power that communion granted, but it pleased her to allow time a little influence over her looks, and so she had permitted the aging process to advance her into early middle age. At the age of 250, it seemed more fitting to possess the bearing of an elegant woman of perhaps 40. Thomas's approval contented her more than she cared to admit. I wish I could kiss you. I wish that too, she agreed. You're fading, Thomas. Tell me what you need to tell me. Then tell me you love me. You must free the fairy, and you must confront the wicked man he spoke of. He threatens our family. Rebecca, Abigail's only child to survive infancy, had herself born a daughter, Agnes, and she a girl of her own, Abigail, named for the great-grandmother she would never know. Beyond that, Abigail had not dared check on her grandchildren. She had watched Rebecca succumb to old age from afar, and then Agnes after her, and she could not bear to see time ravage any more of her babies, for they were her babies still, no matter if she could only watch their lives from a distance. She had retreated before her namesake bore any offspring. I can't tell you, but you must put a stop to the killing. Please, Abby, you must. Don't abandon us again. That's not fair, she said, rubbing at her eye. She had been thankful the man her father chose was gentle and compassionate, easy to love. Yet in retrospect, she found herself wishing he had been the ogre she'd feared. It would not have been hard to leave such a man. I love you, Abigail. I always will. I never blamed you. I still love you. She kissed her fingertips and held them out to his diminishing presence. I always will. I know. The words drifted away on the gentle breeze. Abigail checked that the fay had not woken before allowing herself to weep. She thought of Thomas and her mortal life rarely now. The years between usually permitted her the luxury of imagining it had all happened to somebody else, that it had been another Abigail who turned away from a God-fearing existence to commune with an untamed spirit and walk the wilder path of freedom, knowing her husband and child could not tread it with her. 
Abigail had not made her choice frivolously, and she told herself that despite the lonely centuries, she would make it again without hesitation. Yet the wounds were ripe for reopening, the reminder that for all the wonder of the path she walked, it remained a solitary adventure. If you have deceived me, fairy, I will find you no matter what corner of the earth, the fair kingdom, or hell you run to, she warned. She had shorn the binding enchantment from the fae spirit, and now only her hexed ropes contained him. He offered her wrists, hopeful of release. No deception, he promised. The house and plantation of Wildrum Eldred lies two miles east. Ask any creature of the earth or the nether. They will tell you of the dark maelstrom that centers upon that place. Nothing can see into it. Innocent souls are taken in, but they do not come out again. I will find you, she repeated, and it was no idle threat. She had put a mark upon the fay as he slept. Not even Lucifer could hide him, should her wrath be provoked. Tread carefully, the fair warned. Her eyes widened in anger for a moment until she realized he was offering her caution rather than a threat. Master Eldridge keeps a debased witch as a servant. I won't concern myself with some mortal who has a few hand-me-down spells. Fairy, you should hold me in higher regard than that. The face shook his head quite serious. She is no ordinary debased witch. Some dark power has raised her up. I don't understand it, but she may be too strong even for such as you. I am a born sister, twinned with an elm spirit. I have warned you. The fae looked away, unwilling to concede anything further. Very well, she said unknotting the binds at his wrists. I will tread very lightly. Thank you, Abigail, daughter of Agnes. The face seemed pleased. I've enjoyed our time together, and I hope you don't come to harm. You fairies are very strange. That has been observed many times by many folk. Go now before I think again. She shooed him off and climbed back into her saddle. The fay waved happily and faded into the surrounding greenery without moving his mischievous eyes disappearing lastly. Abigail paused for a moment, fearing that she had made a mistake. The marshals and Langston were not a forgiving bunch, and the thought of losing their friendship gnawed at her. Yet it was too late to reconsider. She could track the fae using her mark, but it might take decades to catch him again. There was undeniably something very wrong with the Eldred plantation and estate. Abigail circled it at a good distance some three times and saw no birds fly overhead. There were no signs of any crops growing, no hands, free or otherwise, working the fields, which were fallow and taken over by weeds. Abigail turned her second sight upon the neglected plantation and found it shrouded in an unpenetrable psychic mist, perhaps the periphery of some metaphysical maelstrom. She retreated a mile up a back road before she stopped to parlay with the local ghosts reconsidering her dismissal of the Fae's warnings. What's wrong with that place, she asked the dead woodsman, who had answered her summons. Don't know, he admitted. It's been like that as long as I remember. Since I was a boy, at least. Can't nobody see in there. None of us deadens ever wander too close, neither. Get a wicked bad feeling if you creep too near, you understand? I need to get in there. The wife was regular folk. Passed some ten years since. Across the divide, but we could get her impressions from the air. You should go as her kinfolk. That'll work for me. I have paper hereabouts. 
if you think you could conjure me a few letters of introduction in the wife's hand. No trouble, sister witch, the woodsman agreed happily. Val can see to it. Just you be careful not to let Nanny catch on your not regular folk. Nanny? She's the debased witch this Master Eldred keeps? She is, though she's a darker sort than any of us have ever seen. I'd have said a born sister shouldn't trouble with her, but from what we saw five years since, tell me, please. One of these free state boys with the African magic came by, asking Master about his people, if they're all free. Nanny comes out the house and slaps a hex right on him. He wanders away, looking all dazed, all his questions forgot. I seen what those African magic boys done in the war. No common base witch just walks up and slaps a hex on one of those boys like he's some glum blind mortal. Thank you, she murmured. You be careful now, sister witch. With all her magic buried deep, Abigail pulled the doorbell over the elegantly decaying manor. She stood demure and weak, awaiting an answer, her appearance utterly transformed. She had contorted the bones of her jaw and cheeks, had blanched her skin a little to present a familial resemblance to William Eldred's deceased wife. She had not worn a stranger's features in decades, and the feeling was strange, discombobulating even. Yet she turned this to her advantage, smoothing the discomfort into her new persona, the northern socialite so far from home, seeking the hospitality of the brother-in-law whom she had never met. A small gray-faced woman opened the door. Abigail knew at once that this was Nanny. Even without the use of her second sight, she could discern the dark power emanating from the woman's sinewy frame. She clicked audibly as she moved, and the little exposed skin Abigail could see suggested a physique comprised of skin, gristle, bone, and little else. Gaunt and haggard, Nanny seemed old at first glance, and yet her eyes suggested youth. Abigail could recognize the signs of great age in a person's eyes. She saw the same in the mirror each time she looked, and the signs were absent here. Is Master William expecting you? Nanny asked flatly. There was no obvious hostility in her voice, yet Abigail felt an overwhelming sense of threat, and with it came a tingling sensation above her brow. It was the sensation that heralded a psychic image. There was something to see, should she open her third eye. She did not dare. No, he is not, she squeaked, sounding utterly unlike herself. A small constriction in her windpipe had elevated her voice several octaves, instilling in it a girlish quality at odds with its usual confident depth. Abigail hoped the effect would prove convincing. The ghost Val had emulated the speech of Eldred's dead wife as a touchstone, but she could not say how accurate that initial approximation had been. Are you known to Master William? Nanny asked. It seemed she had noted the similarities between her deceased mistress and the stranger at the door. Not as such, Abigail replied nervously, but I am family, though we haven't met. She thrust out one of the letters Val had transcribed. Nanny accepted it and squinted at the page, her lips moving as she read. My horse was killed some miles back. A snake bite, she went on piteously. I had to walk the last part. The lie served two purposes, to embellish the presentation of helplessness and to keep Arthur away from this dread place. He was roaming free, back near the river awaiting her call. Once she was clear of the ethereal storm centered on this place, he would come to her summons, no matter the mundane distance between them. Please come inside, Nanny said when she had finished shifting to one side and outstretching an arm in welcome. I will fetch Master William. I'm sure he will be delighted to receive you. In a fine drawing room, Abigail waited. 
It was filled with heirlooms, pottery, and ornaments from a dozen or more cultures spanning the breadth of the globe and the eons of human civilization. She wagered that if she were to open her third eye, she would see blood and suffering smeared across the varied pieces, the wages of heedless plunder. She felt an excitement waking as it occurred to her that the Fae had been right. William Eldred was just the sort of man from whom she would care to take her pleasures. He entered the room and confirmed her suspicion. He was perfect, so vile, so perfectly vile. Well, I will be damned, he drawled upon seeing her. He licked thin lips and his thoughts were plain to Abigail, even without recourse to an enchantment for hearing them. How do you do? She stood, bowing her head demurely. Most well, he answered, sizing her up and down. She could feel his eyes upon her and so bated her breath to hold back the excitement. Forgive me, dear Abigail, he said, though it was quite plain that he desired no forgiveness. You are the very picture of my dearly departed Clara. I was always told we looked much alike, she agreed, keeping her eyes modestly diverted. He wanted to take her right there, she could tell. It took some effort to keep from inviting him to do just that, from giggling at the thought of choking him with his own lust. You might think this strange, my dear, but she never once spoke a word of you. How about that? We didn't remain on good terms past girlhood. Oh, no? No, we quarreled something fierce. I'd wager Clara told you little about our family at all, he smirked. You would wager quite correctly. I must ask your forgiveness, Master Eldred, for descending upon you without so much as a word of warning. But there is nothing to forgive, and you simply must call me William. We are family, after all. My husband, you see, he died not six months since. He was not a successful man, not like you, William. I didn't possess Clara's good sense when it came to romance. He left a great many debts, and I had to sell up everything, our father's inheritance. I had only my horse and the clothes on my back. I'm sorry to say, I have nowhere else to turn. I'm glad of it, he whispered, his eyes narrowing, his tongue flicking quickly across his lips. Even constrained to her mortal senses, Abigail could tell that his pulse raced and his mouth grew dry with excitement. The skin at his temples tightened, and she imagined that she could see his profane fantasies dancing in the darkness of his dilated pupils. I have had a very difficult ride, she began, diverting her eyes. The road was not far from the boundary, and I fear I might have been taken any moment. You needn't fear those savages across the river. He reached down and took her hand in his. The softness of his fingers revolted her, and that revulsion spurred lustful desires and exquisite visions of him, entwined in her legs, crying out. You are quite protected within these walls, he continued, quite ignorant of all that passed behind her eyes. This is a wonderful place. She held his gaze and squeezed his fingers, sensing a hidden meaning behind his words. Your family have held it for some time? My great-great-great-grandfather laid the foundation in 1630. The year I was born, she thought, somewhat uncomfortably. Why, he must have been one of the first white men to come this far up the Mississippi, she gasped, feigning astonishment less than she might have cared to admit. He was something of a pioneer. There was another hidden meaning. Oh, my. She caressed his fingers and watched him wrestle with the thought of kissing her. She waited right until the moment his mind was made to speak experiencing a shot of cruel joy at his unvarnished disappointment. The cares of the day, William, 
They have quite worn me out. My dear, please forgive me, he groaned, pulling away. I have been quite the brute, overlooking your needs so terribly. I will have Nanny prepare a room and then some supper. Perhaps, when you're refreshed, we can become better acquainted. Abigail examined the guest room, frustrated by the limitations of her mortal faculties. She felt certain her third eye would reveal the mysteries of the Eldred estate, though the warnings of the Fay and the ghosts and the sense of profound discomfort that Nanny instilled left Abigail hesitant to use her second sight. Nanny claimed the room had sat empty since before the death of Mistress Eldridge, yet, even without supernatural insight, Abigail could tell that was patently a lie. Well cleaned as it was, a careful search of the guest room revealed evidence of several recent guests. Moving the bed, Abigail recovered hairs that belonged to at least three different girls. The inside of the door was recently repainted, and beneath the fresh coat were grooves in the wood, gouged, most probably, by human fingernails. The quickest look, she muttered to herself, no longer able to bear the ignorance. Abigail let her mortal eyes roll back and felt her supernatural eye flutter open. She squeezed it tight shut almost immediately and let out a horrified gasp. There was an angry knock upon the door. Abigail remained frozen, in shock, her fists clenched tightly. The door rattled again furiously. A moment, Abigail forced herself to say. Without pause, the door swung open to reveal Nanny standing before the threshold, her hands clasped behind her back. It appeared she had opened the door without raising a finger. Abigail took a quick breath, anticipating an offensive hex. Supper is ready, Nanny announced flatly and turned away, demonstrating no suspicion that her master's sister-in-law was anything other than what she claimed to be. Abigail exhaled and finally her fists unclenched, though the memory of what her third eye had seen did not fade. Red eyes, rotten and malicious, lidded in decaying oak, staring out hungrily, insatiable. It was something very old, very evil, and very close. You have no crops in the field, Abigail observed, as she pushed a solitary lumpen piece of meat around her plate. The stew was quite literally the foulest thing she had tasted in her two and a half centuries upon the earth. Sitting across the table, Master Eldred was gobbling his gigantic portion like he was a starving man come upon a feast. He certainly had the appearance of a starving man, gaunt and rangy thin. Abigail found herself wondering whether Nanny permitted him food when they did not have company. I don't farm, Eldred replied, not even between mouthfuls. I have other business. Pray, do tell. Abigail lifted her spoon and braced herself for the foul stew. There were a dozen hexes which could have made the act of eating the gloop less unpleasant, but she dared risk none of them. Slaves, my dear. He watched her reaction carefully, setting down his spoon. Oh, I trade and broker. Does that offend your union sensibilities? I'm not well versed in such matters, she demurred. I heard a tale on the road. Perhaps you could confirm its veracity? What tale is this? The masters in Atlanta use fairies to sneak into the free state and take children. Eldred merely shrugged. Mayhaps they do. I wouldn't know. I don't deal with slave markets in Georgia. African brutes to work fields is not my business. That would buy me all kinds of trouble with the boys over the water. They are in Langston, which I simply do not need. 
No, my dear, I trade in a very different kind of servitude. Should you be telling me this? Abigail squeaked, feigning fear. She suspected a show of fearfulness from his helpless houseguests would encourage Master William to boldness. Her suspicions were quite accurate. Well, this is my home and you are my wife's sister. Why should I not? I owe you honesty, don't you think? The servitude of which I speak pertains not to work in the fields, but to the needs that gentlemen have. You are a married woman, Abigail. You know the kinds of needs I speak of. Harlots, you mean to say. She held his gaze and raised her chin defiantly. Yes, that would be an accurate description. You see, you may think me cruel, but these fallen women are duplicitous and sinful creatures, not gentle or pure beings such as you are. Abigail stifled a chortle, keeping her face perfectly even. If these heady temptresses are allowed their liberty, they will lead God-fearing gentlemen to abandon their wives. You take these girls from the free state? You misunderstand me, dear Abigail. The majority of these women are not African. They come from the gutters of the Union and the Confederacy, from New Amsterdam and Charleston. Street girls, you see. You snatch them off the streets of the big cities? Not I, personally. I'm a mere broker, and nobody does any snatching. I see this is far outside your sphere. Forgive me. I'm being too brutal once again. You are a gentle woman, just like your sister. You inhabit the polite world, protected from the deprivations of such people. These women, you see, they are troubled by the very same impulses that caused Eve to lead Adam astray. My associates give them shelter, protection, and a safer outlet for their impulses. In our care, they provide comfort to good gentlemen in a manner that does not endanger the family. You are a humanitarian, then, she remarked coldly. The reaction was very much part of her act, the response of a morally upstanding northern gentlewoman. Were it not for Nanny and the eldritch presence, hidden somewhere nearby, she would have assaulted him with a flaming cocktail of hexes and taken her pleasures from him atop the still-laid table, and she would not have stopped until the agony had driven him to madness. Yet, she still did not have the full picture. She had choked many a whoremonger upon his own desires, but vile as those men had been, none had resided beneath such a maelstrom of otherworldly malice. There was more to William Eldred's depravities than the exploitation of destitute girls for the base desires of wealthy men. You judge me harshly, and I cannot blame you. I have been indelicate. These years since Clara's passing have coarsened me, I'll admit. The purpose that compels me, it is hard sometimes. Purpose? Eldred's eyes narrowed and Abigail cursed herself silently. She had spoken too eagerly. Your moral purpose? She added, showing him indignation and praying that she had not shown her hand. How outrageous. Tell me, have you found someplace else to go since we last spoke? Eldred's mask of gentility slipped fully. You came to my door seeking charity. You are a cruel man, she said, turning her gaze down to the bowl of foul stew, pitching her voice mouse-like. Circumstance has made me this way, he leaned across the table toward her. Circumstance? But I can be warm, he insisted, cutting her off. Clara always found me so. She helped me with my burden, softened my hard nature. Sensing her opportunity, Abigail looked up and took his hands. Let me do the same, she whispered, and before he could answer, she pulled him into a kiss. 
displacing crockery. Tell me everything. Abigail lay beside Eldridge, grinding her teeth angrily. She had allowed him inside her, had worked no hexes nor inflicted pain, permitting him to take her as Thomas once had, like an honest lover, though the act was, from her perspective, anything but honest. She had done so in the hope that he would spill his secrets, but all he had spilled was his seed. And now he snored contentedly, as close to reunited with his Clara as he could have been without necromancy. What was worse, the act itself had antagonized her. Vile a man as he were, he had been fawningly tender and displayed none of the viciousness which might have provided her some excitement. Far from satisfied, as she usually felt after wading through the filth, she felt merely filthy. She stared up at the ceiling and tried to ponder her next move, but rather than focus upon the future, her mind slipped into the past. Lovemaking without hexes always reminded her of mortal life, of the sporadically satisfying trysts with Thomas, of the mundanity, and above all, the lack of power. She thought of the first time she heard the call of the elm spirit, when her hardly nurtured occult talents had begun to awaken, when she could no longer doubt what the fair folk had told her of her lineage when she was a child, dancing with them in the forests of the old world. Her father had dragged her away in search of his puritanical utopia across the wide Atlantic. She had all but forgotten magic, living her harsh, disenchanted pilgrim life. She had obeyed her father and married Thomas, and then loved him hard for all his flaws and born three children, seeing only Rebecca survive infancy. The power, the freedom that the elm spirit offered was irresistible, though the price was so high. The early pilgrim colonies were no place for a witch, certainly not with the dark passions the elm spirit nurtured within her. Thomas was as glum blind as a mortal as any that ever walked, and Rebecca took more from her father than her mother. Abigail had sacrificed her mortal family, had left that life behind, and yet now, even after centuries had passed, the pain could still assail her. The pain brought anger, and with the anger came recklessness. There was evil here and fear of some debased witch with upjump powers should not keep her from confronting it. Damning the risk of discovery, she allowed the third eye to open. She could sense the eldritch presence somewhere, above and close by, and so she restricted her gaze to the bedroom in hope of escaping its attention. She glimpsed the girls, multitudes of them, dragged before Master William in the bony grip of Nanny. Some he did not touch, though she could taste his lust quite plainly. Some other higher purpose kept his hands off them. Only a few, whom he could not resist and whom the purpose could spare, did he take for himself, gentle yet firmly unyielding, despite their begging sobs. Abigail closed her third eye and felt the elm spirit stir within her. Her pulse quickened and her mouth grew dry. Her patience was at an end. She worked her fingers subtly, weaving the discreet hex around William's nether region, reawakening his desire for her. They had to want it, the wicked men, but that was no trouble. They always wanted it. Moments later, he emerged from sleep, already mumbling feverishly, awareness of a lustful discomfort more intense than any he had known, filling his waking mind. His words dissolved into helpless animal noises. Abigail took a deep breath and straddled the mister. He pawed at her form and she invited his hands onward, feeling them around her waist and then climbing her ribs, clutching her nightgown. 
Gently, she began to guide his hips, setting their tempo, increasing it gradually as the pain built within him. Tell me everything, she moaned, sucking the pleasure out from him to add to her own, leaving him only raw agony. She quickened their pace, and the master could do nothing but oblige, no matter the torment. His dark urges now twisted against him were insatiable, no matter the damage heeding them may cause. As he ground himself into her at a furious pace, Abigail pressed her fingers into his temples, swatting aside his psychic defenses, which crumbled like rotting fences. She saw everything, the family secret, the pioneering grandfather who had crossed into hell in search of new power, the paralysis that frustrated his triumphant return from Lucifer's kingdom. For centuries now, the Eldred family, without the knowledge to free their patriarch, had fed him, sustaining him until recently with slaves taken young before their spirit could curdle. And since the war, since the rise of the free state, destitute girls from the gutters of far cities. Finally, as the master reached his excruciating orgasm, Abigail saw the reason Thomas had crossed the divide. A girl from Maine, orphaned and scared, cowering in a locked room, awaiting the deprivations of rotten Grandfather Eldred. A girl with a face Abigail remembered so well, despite the passage of centuries. Master Eldred wailed, and Abigail cried out, pulling herself free of him. He slid off the bed, bawling himself into a fetal position, blood leaking down his legs. Abigail stumbled to her feet, all caution abandoned, made frantic by the maternal instinct suddenly rekindled. She was barely aware of the door opening, of Nanny standing in the threshold, her face stony and blank. The first offensive hex assaulted Abigail, throwing her into the dresser. She bounced off it, already searching her mind for a counterspell. She regained herself a moment later, springing to her feet with a vicious ancient curse, powerful enough to bloody a seraph. In disbelief, Abigail watched Nanny bat it aside, as though it were a mortal child's first enchantment. The second offensive hex blasted conscious thought right out of Abigail's skull. She had only hazy recollections of Nanny dragging her one-handed up a winding, narrow staircase. Her senses returned cruelly with the pain. Abigail clutched at her face as her features reshaped themselves. The grinding of her bones, the pull of twisting ligament, tendon, and muscle was unsoftened, the process of transfiguration reversing without the anesthetic enchantment. She screamed, unable to resist, heedless of the creaking laughter that answered her distress. When the transformation was fully reversed, when Abigail's face and voice were her own once more, she let her forehead rest against the floorboards pulling in shallow breaths, kneading the cotton of her nightgown between her fingers senselessly. Catch your breath, witch. There is more of that to come. Abigail strained to pull her head up, to turn so that she might see the owner of the gnarled voice. Rotten Grandfather Eldred regarded her contemptuously from the timbers that entombed his corporeal form. Even in her wearied condition, she recognized at once what happened to the Rotten Grandfather. He had constructed a ramshackle bridge onto Lucifer's kingdom, had weakened it almost to the point of collapse by his entry into hell, and caused its disintegration upon his return. That he had survived the fusion of his body into the timber spoke to the power he had acquired in the underworld. There was much evidence of sorcery in the attic, totems, inscriptions, salt, chalk, potions, and powders 
representing perhaps generations of fruitless attempts to free him. Powerful as he had become, releasing him should be no difficult thing, though his anatomy would likely remain ligneous until he constructed or stole a new form. Yet, it seemed the elder children had failed at every turn. Raw power and little wisdom, Abigail thought, as her head began to clear. Grandfather, cried Master William, his pained voice reverberating from the narrow staircase along with the clattering of his uneven footfalls. Come to me, William, Grandfather Eldred replied. What ill has your little pecker wrought this time? It won't stop bleeding, William stammered, stumbling his way up into the attic. He had donned silken pajamas and already blood was saturating the crotch. He shuffled, hunched and whimpering, toward the entombed Eldred Patriarch. From Clara's sister, some kind of venereal disease, he sobbed piteously. How could I resist? I miss her so much. That is not Clara's sister. Look at her. William gasped as she saw Abigail's true face. Though I doubt it would have made any difference had she not taken the trouble to deceive you. She is a witch and no mortal one either. A born sister, I would wager, twinned with some wild spirit. Tell me, William, do you have any notion of why she is here? If you have endangered my sustenance, I will pull you apart, boy. Be it the last thing before I fade into the timbers. I don't know. She didn't know anything, I swear. She knows a lot now, though, doesn't she? And you still cannot tell me why she has come here. I know, Nanny declared, reappearing at the top of the staircase with the new prisoner in hand. A girl, perhaps 13 or 14 years old, who gasped in horror upon seeing Grandfather Eldred. Abigail blasphemed silently, then forced herself to her feet, hurling another hex at Nanny. The debased witch did not even react. Abigail felt the hex rebound from an invisible barrier, burying itself in her own stomach. She gagged and fought to keep herself upright, struggling to disarm the magic. When she had succeeded, she let her third eye open. Like a spider's web, strands of Grandfather Eldred's power wove through the attic. No offensive hex could hope to find its mark. She was powerless, as helpless as the little girl whose father had separated her from her fairy companions. Rebecca, she said, though she knew it were unlikely the girl's name. Yes, the fearful girl answered, squinting at Abigail, trying to fathom if she knew the hardly dressed woman. Her granddaughter, Nanny said, raising Rebecca's arm. Some generations removed, perhaps, but the family resemblance, the true family resemblance, is undeniable. The girl looked up at Nanny quizzically and then turned again to Abigail. Ah, how perfect. Thank you, Nanny. I would gift you more power if your frail little body could contain it. Grandfather Eldred strained to turn his head, pulling against the restraint to address Abigail. A trade, which I'm listening. I hunger, and so I'm going to devour your wealth. I might consider sparing you the sight if you will fix my grandson. That doesn't sound like much of a trade, Abigail remarked, casting a frown toward William's pathetic form. Very well, Nanny, bring me the girl. Grandfather Eldred grinned, salivating sap. Nanny started toward the patriarch, dragging Rebecca. Please, no, Rebecca shrieked, trying desperately to dig her bare heels into the floorboards. Her struggling meant nothing to Nanny. Wait, I don't want to see this, please. Let me take the deal. Abigail held out her hand in appeal to the Eldred patriarch, in the process edging herself toward Nanny. The debased witch put herself between Abigail and Rebecca, 
unaware that she was doing exactly what the born witch hoped she would. The trade has expired. You will watch, Grandfather Eldred said flatly. Please, it still hurts, begged William. Oh, Abigail exclaimed, moving her hands to her belly as though in anguish, concealing the spell she was weaving upon the seed she still held inside her. Nanny raised her free hand, ready to cast a hex, her attention diverted, her body positioned exactly where Abigail needed. William gasped and straightened suddenly as the spell took effect. His eyes glazed and he seized Nanny, so surprised she barely even struggled. What? Grandfather Eldred began, cutting off as Abigail began her next incantation. Instinctively, the rotten patriarch resisted until he felt what she was doing. What is this? he asked as he began to pull free from the timbers that imprisoned him. Your freedom, Abigail admitted. You think I'm going to spare you? No, you'll be too hungry to spare even your own children. Too late, he realized what she had in mind. With his first step in the mortal world in centuries, all that mattered now was the ravenous hunger. Rebecca, come to me, shouted Abigail, darting for a piece of chalk. Nanny regained her wits and pried herself loose of William. With a golem fury, he scrambled to restrain her, ripping her dress, revealing the skeletal, vascular state of her flesh, ravaged by the power Grandfather had bequeathed. Rebecca was free to run, but she hesitated, torn between the open staircase and the strangely familiar woman. Rebecca, please! Grandfather Eldred was almost free of his prison. He roared incoherently. It was a sound like his grandson had made, yet amplified and intensified a thousandfold. Please, Rebecca, don't leave me again. Grandfather Eldred stalked onward, his timber legs far stronger, far more flexible than they appeared. William did not even turn as he was pulling away from Nanny, flailing for her as the rotten patriarch twisted his head around, pried open his jaws to suck the life right out of him. Without fully knowing why, Rebecca chose to trust the familiar-seeming woman, rushing to her side even though the stare seemed the more logical option. Abigail took Rebecca's hand, thrusting it into a piece of chalk. Draw a circle around us, my love, she instructed. Rebecca chalked furiously into the floorboards whilst Abigail chanted and Grandfather Eldred turned his attention to Nanny, who gave herself willingly. William, now a desiccated husk, lay discarded. Abigail dropped to her knees, wrapping her arms around Rebecca and squeezing her tight. Shut your eyes, she whispered. The rotten patriarch approached gingerly, still unsated. He stretched out his wooden fingers and recoiled as the air scorched them. She is mine and you will not take her, Abigail hissed, hugging Rebecca possessively. The spirit within her stirred and the column of air above the chalk circle ignited. Grandfather Eldred raged in frustration, upturning the attic, hurling dismembered parts of his grandson to immolate the flaming circle. Don't look, Abigail told Rebecca, stroking her hair as she used to, two centuries past. They remained within the circle for an unmarked stretch of time, Rebecca sobbing softly within Abigail's embrace. Though she knew this was not her Rebecca, Abigail could not contain the joy of being a mother once again. She squeezed tighter. She did not want to let go, ever. Silence came at some point in the early hours, and with dawn, silence gave way to a chorus of birdsong. Who are you? Rebecca asked sleepily. I'm your grandmother. Rebecca frowned, 
uneager to contradict her savior. She had known both her grandmothers, who had both died, and neither had been this woman, who was surely too young besides. Well, your great-grandmother several times over. You can't be. You're not old enough. Abigail smiled and kissed her on the cheek. I'm 250, young lady. I can assure you I'm very much old enough. She stood and examined the devastation around them. You're a witch, a true witch, Rebecca exclaimed, delighted. I am. What was that thing? A demon? Close enough. Stay behind me. The rest of the house was in much the same state as the attic, ransacked by Grandfather Eldred in his search for sustenance. Abigail glanced out the front door, spotting a trail of small dead animals, mice, rats, and birds that led into the fields. It seemed the rotten patriarch had escaped into the world. She took a moment to reflect upon the task of capturing him before she went back inside in search of her clothes. Is it gone? Rebecca asked, passing Abigail her riding boots, retrieved from the guest room. They had returned to William Eldred's room, where Abigail's clothes were deposited in a heap on the floor, beside the upturned bed. Abigail had righted it so she might sit. I think so. Abigail pulled on her boots hastily. I have to catch up with it. There's no telling what carnage the vile thing might wreak. If it weren't for your life, I'd never have set it free. Oh, Rebecca frowned. Is this my fault? Abigail stood and took the girl by the shoulders. Never think that. The world is filled with vile men. Never shoulder the guilt for their actions. You did nothing wrong. Have you done wrong? Abigail turned away from the question and grabbed her pack from the bed, making for the door. The question prompted thoughts of passion she indulged at the expense of wicked men and the fear of what she might do if the endless supply of wicked men were ever to falter. She had grown so powerful and wrought such vengeance at times she worried she'd be no better than the men who ruled the mortal world. She batted the inconvenient thoughts away. Stay close unless I tell you to run. Then don't hesitate. Rebecca lingered for a moment, unsure of the witch who claimed to be her great-great-grandmother. Yet when Abigail left her sight, the fear of abandonment overcame her, and she hurried after her savior. Abigail stood on the porch with her arms outstretched, calling silently to Arthur, praying rotten godfather Eldridge had not found the horse. The psychic maelstrom had dissipated, its invisible swirling winds dropping, and so the call should reach her horse. Sister witch! The faint echo of the dead woodsman came on the wind, drawing Abigail's attention. She reached back instinctively, feeling for Rebecca, who huddled behind her. Get back in the house! The dead woodsman's shade was moving quickly, eerily through the overgrown field before the house, barely visible in the sunlight. Abigail could just make out the movement of his arms, waving in warning. There was a sudden explosion of vegetation, a predatory eruption like a shark breaching the ocean waves in pursuit of a fleeing seal. The translucent shade half turned in alarm before he was engulfed by the cascade of plant matter centered upon the rotted wooden figure of Grandfather Eldred. Eldred emerged again from the long grass, gripping the struggling phantom. His malvolent eyes fixed upon Abigail as he raised the woodman to his cracked mouth and sucked in the effervescent material of the ghost, consuming the panicking spirit. Eldred rose to his full height, taller now than he had been in the attic, claw-like thorns growing at his extremities, from his elbows and at his shoulders. His limbs and torso had thickened, 
taking on an altogether more muscular appearance. He had fed and grown stronger already. Wait until I engage it, and then you run straight down the path for the road. If Arthur can answer my call, you'll meet him on the main road. Ride for Langston due west. Trust my horse. He'll see you there safe. Abigail took a step toward the gnarled monstrosity, biting down on her fear, the knowledge that her long life was about to end. I'll keep it occupied as long as I can. You'll be right behind me, won't you? Don't be stupid, girl. It's going to tear me to pieces. Abigail snapped, already chastising herself for the sharpness of her words. Her fear was maddening. Her fear and that of the elm spirit within her. Its emotions were wild and difficult to contain at the best of times. It could sense its own impending doom, and it pulled at Abigail, beseeching her to sacrifice the girl and run. She bludgeoned the spirit with her maternal feelings, making it experience the love and the pain, stinging it with the guilt that those sharp words would be their last to Rebecca, lost for centuries and found again so fleetingly. Abigail summoned fire to her fingertips, scorching her flesh, bearing the excruciating heat in the hope that the wooden monster was as susceptible to fire as the old timbers he resembled. She strode down the porch steps into the long grass to meet the rotten grandfather, igniting the dry vegetation as she went. Eldred held back for a moment, doubt creeping into his ancient mind. The flames were overtaking Abigail, spreading into the grass, carrying the promise of wildfire. Rebecca wasn't running. She remained frozen in place on the porch. Abigail wanted to cry out, to get her moving, but all her strength was invested in resisting the flames, in delaying her immolation. Grandfather Eldred backed away from the encroaching inferno, fixing his inhuman eyes on Rebecca. He turned and charged towards the path, meaning to find a clear route to the house and the defenseless child. With a furious howl, Abigail exhaled her desperation, sending her fires surging. Flame reached Eldridge and his aberracious flesh ignited. In rageful pain, he screamed, struggling for the path. Sensing his impending escape, Abigail tried to intensify the blaze, but her power was spent. She collapsed into the burning grass, her skin blistering, her defeated sobs downed out by the crackling sounds of the brush spire. The rotten grandfather was escaping the flames, reaching the path from where he could make a beeline for Rebecca. Abigail tried to exhort the spirits for assistance, tried to call for Thomas from beyond the veil, but her voice failed. All she could do was tilt her head and hope that Rebecca was running. The girl was still on the porch, but she was no longer frozen by fear. Tentatively, she was descending the steps, her arms raised, her lips moving furiously. With a thundercrack, a lightning bolt leapt from her fingers, a rudimentary offensive curse. Through her agony, Abigail felt a swell of pride. This Rebecca was truly a born witch, like her grandmother. The pride was consumed quickly by the fire. Grandfather Eldred batted the curse aside with ease, undeterred by the flames which danced along his smoldering shoulders. Abigail battled to retain consciousness despite the sweet promise of oblivion, the deliverance from pain and suffering that the blackness offered. She dragged herself toward the path, finding new fight within herself, spurred by the elm spirit's desire to escape the flames. Eldred advanced upon Rebecca, raised his arms to grab her. Before he could, another thunderclap, louder than the first, rang out. Splinters exploded from Eldred's burning torso, and his right arm spun away, severed from his person. 
He stumbled, falling before Rebecca's feet. More thunderclaps followed. Rebecca was reeling backward, retreating from the cowering form of the rotten grandfather. Get her out of the fire, an unfamiliar voice cried. Abigail became aware of a new thunder, the thunder of horses galloping down the path. She strained to see, and her heart soared. The marshals from Langston, a dozen of them, charging toward Grandfather Eldred, their hexed bullets flying before them. Eldred caught sight of Abigail through the chaos, fixing her with a moment's hateful red glare that burned hotter than the brush fire. Then he roared, sending a shockwave that turned the horses and knocked the marshals from their saddles. He seized the opportunity to escape, charging for the cover of the nearby tree line, disappearing into the trees before the marshals could regain their composure. The marshals fired their hexed bullets into the thicket in several volleys, but hit only mundane timber. Abigail reached out her arm in mute appeal and felt hands wrap about it, and then around her waist, pulling her from the fire. Finally, she embraced the darkness. Thomas was smiling, standing just above the veil, beckoning her onward. Abigail could feel the elm spirit detaching from her soul, could feel the power that kept her rooted in the living world ebbing away. Contented, unafraid, she moved toward her late husband. Something seized her, arresting her advance. The veil began to recede, and the elm spirit snaked its roots back into her soul. Abigail wailed, groping for death, struggling against life's grip. Peace was denied to her. There were debts to pay in the living world, she realized grimly. You ain't got permission to die yet, witch. Abigail sat bolt upright, gagging her air. The feel of it entering her scorched lungs was agony. She caught sight of her hands and raised them before her eyes in horror, blistered and disfigured. Her whole existence was pain. She's alive, Rebecca exclaimed. She was crouched beside the lead marshal, himself kneeling beside Abigail. Like I said, she ain't got permission to die. She got some debts to pay. The marshal got to his feet. You'll heal, he said brusquely. How'd you know to come? Rebecca asked. Abigail would have asked the same question had she been able to speak. The marshal permitted himself a slight smile. Friend of hers risked her neck to come tell us. That fairy was lucky we didn't blow his head off. He poked his finger toward Abigail. You let that abomination loose in the world, so you're going to deal with it. Rebecca frowned doubtfully. The marshal smiled more fully. Don't worry. She'll have our help. Can you heal yourself? Rebecca moved closer to Abigail, reaching out to touch her before thinking better of it. Eventually, Abigail thought, managing a slight nod. Maybe I can help? Did you see? I did a spell. Through the pain, Abigail managed to smile or at least an approximation close enough for Rebecca to recognize it as such. I'm a witch too, aren't I? Rebecca asked with unconcealed relish. Her grin changed from childish excitement to something altogether more wicked. She was already thinking of the things she might do with a witch's power. I'm just like you, aren't I? Abigail concentrated, summoning what little energy remained to her ravaged vocal cords. Before she could muster any words, she caught sight of a shade, standing amidst the still-burning long grass. It was Thomas, faint in the flickering haze. His frown was clear to Abigail. Say no, he pleaded. She can come with me. I won't be alone. Abigail did not need to speak the words for Thomas's shade to hear. He offered no further protest. Don't make me watch her die too, 
She deserves this power. She should prey on the vicious, not fear them. Thomas dropped his spectral gaze, resigned, and began to fade into brush fire. I never blamed you. Abigail felt her voice recomposing, the power of speech returning. She looked up at Rebecca, still so young and yet already jading. She could see the wildness, the lingering danger in her great-great-granddaughter, the makings of a powerful witch, a companion for the eons, as ravenous and inimical as Abigail herself. Together, they could make the slave makers tremble. Yet she could not forget Thomas's appeal to spare the poor girl from the horrors, to spare her becoming a horror. I want to come with you, Rebecca said. I don't have anyone else. We'll never be parted again, my love, Abigail answered finally. She looked away for a moment to the fire where Thomas's shade had stood. I'm sorry. I won't lose her again. That was A.D. Ross's Grandfather Rot, as read by Elmarie Wood. Elmarie Wood is a two-time Bram Stoker Award and Reisling-nominated author, screenwriter, essayist, and poet. She writes high-concept fiction that includes elements of psychological horror, mystery, dark fantasy, and romance. Wood is also a Myco Award winner and the founder of the Speculative Fiction Academy, an English and creative writing professor, and a horror scholar. Learn more at elmariewood.com. Thank you, Elmarie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Hegra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, 
Spencer Desparti, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we set sail with wayward souls for more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 